Hello and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb and I'm the founder of Innovation Forum. Delighted to be hosting this podcast today to talk about our sustainable apparel barometer, particularly the viscose section. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But joining me in the podcast is Lucita Jasmine from April Group, Liesl Truscott, who works for Textile Exchange, and Nigel Sizer, who's worn many hats and currently has a new one. So I will ask each of them to just say their top line introductions about themselves, and then we'll crack on with the content of the podcast. So Lucy, let me start with you. Give us your top line introductions and welcome. Thank you, Toby. And hello, Nigel and Liesl. So my name is Lucita Jasmine. I'm the Director of Sustainability and External Affairs at the April Group. We are a fiber supplier to viscose manufacturers and sister companies, Asia Pacific Rayon and Saturday, based in China and also in Indonesia. Our company's operations are based in Indonesia, involving manufacturing and also plantation forestry. Liesl, tell us about yourself and the work you do at Textile Exchange. Hi, Toby and Nigel and Lucy. Nice to be on this podcast with you all. Textile Exchange is a nonprofit. We are working with over 600 members now across the entire textile value chain. We focus on the tier four or the raw material part of the textile supply chain. And my role is a director of corporate benchmarking. Nigel. Nigel Sizer, I'm the former president of Rainforest Alliance. I'm a tropical forest ecologist, and now I lead a global coalition of organizations working on preventing future pandemics, bringing environmental groups and public health and human rights groups together. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for making the time to join us. Looking forward to discussing the views of all of you on our recent Sustainable Apparel Barometer. And that's a publication, listeners, you can download in the show notes and from the Innovation Forum website. Something we put together with a number of partners to try and take the temperature, as we call it, of the global apparel industry. And what we mean by that is delving into a number of different issues in a way that sets out a fact-based approach to innovation, looks at trends and looks at how various collaborations and initiatives are evolving. And we're seeing a great deal of change of pace in the apparel sector, not before time, as some might argue, but given the, the stats that are bandied around the Twitter sphere and the social media sphere about its impact, whether those are entirely correct or not, the industry is responding to pressure and using it to create some innovations. And that's what we try and highlight at Innovation Forum. Um, we're also delighted to work with Textile Exchange on this and on other events that we do. So, Liesl, let me turn to you initially. Textile Exchange works across the apparel and textile sector, but you have a particular interest in Visco. So, love to hear your views as to why it's a topic relevant and timely for the industry. We do. We work across what we call a portfolio of materials and different fibres and materials will be more important for some companies and they will be for others, depending on the volumes and the products they produce. But as you say, your viscose and in fact, the range of man-made cellulosics is a really interesting fibre and increasingly so. I mean, it's been around a long time, viscose, or some will remember it as rayon has been around for over a hundred years now, I think, and it's had its peaks and troughs in terms of popularity. I think it came in as an alternative to silk originally. And I think the technology is increasingly evolving, which is making it even more exciting, particularly when we think about innovation in this space. But yes, it's important. It's the third largest fibre after cotton or polyester and cotton. 
man-made cellulosics fits after that in terms of volume. And that's growing both in terms of its volume and its volume share of material use, something like a 4% growth on year. So that's interesting. Companies like its hand feel, its drape, it's got a lot of redeeming features. But of course, like them all, it comes with risks. And we like to think of the risks and the opportunities in parallel. So in, in terms of risks, everything from forestry, which is a huge, huge topic. It has been for a while, but especially after COP26, there's an increasing interest on the combination of climate and nature-based solutions and the role of forestry. So that's really interesting. And then in terms of its chemistry and impacts within its factory production, it's the chemistry that's being used, the effluent and waste. So lots of risks that need to be addressed in the industry. But from an opportunity perspective, forests are huge land sinks, their livelihoods for a lot of people. Increasingly, we're seeing nature-based solutions enter, breaking up this conversation that's been around supply chains into looking more at a a sort of a landscape dynamic. The third point to bring in is this inner space and innovation. And Lucy and Nigel hinted on it already, looking at different feedstocks beyond the forest, whether it's residue, whether it's hopefully more textile to textile, and how companies like April can be a significant part of that innovation. I think that's really exciting. Well, yeah, it is terribly exciting, isn't it? I met a fascinating man at your recent conference in Dublin who was telling me about this big picture idea he has for decentralised materials, fuels and protein production from waste materials. Um, and this new startup he's got funded doing it. And of course, you always meet these people at conferences and then perhaps you wonder what happens. But you know, you, you're seeing enough of those innovations now to know that perhaps one or two of them are going to stick and could be really transformative. And it certainly looks like the, the investments in technology are taking us in that direction. So at least well, the obvious question as a follow-up is, what did you think of, of the barometer? And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the particular analysis that we've done. You know, we're in this decade of decisive action. We need to talk to each other. And what I really liked about it, Toby, was looking at the different ways we can engage with others. So who are almost our surprise partners? I heard that term the other day and I thought, yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, we need to have dialogue within our supply networks. We need to think of the relationship and the risk reward sharing that will help us push through on some of these challenges and barriers within supply networks. And of course, we need to really seriously think about where competition is important and actually where it's a real hindrance. And I'm quite passionate about that because I think there's a lot more we can do. We talk about collaboration almost without thinking about what we mean there now, but I think going past competition, and I think your report really brought that opportunity. And of course, the thing you guys are really famous for that I love is looking at smallholder land use challenges, looking at other sectors. And I see that cross-pollination in terms of ideas, innovation, surprise partnerships as really key. And I think the barometer really emphasized those opportunities and brought that dialogue to life. And it's not easy. It's not straightforward. There's not one size fits all. We need to look holistically and there's often trade-offs. So those conversations about how we resolve some of those challenges and look at the different sides of the coin, I think were fascinating. Thank you. There's a lot more to unpick there in 
future editions. We did try and bring out some of the complexity of it, and I'm lucky enough to have been taken out there by April APR and had a look at it just before COVID hit. And it really is a, a fascinating set of investments, which perhaps doesn't get the credit it deserves, perhaps given where it is and so on. Nigel, turning to you, you've read through the barometer. I know it's a fair bit to get through. We tried to make it pretty readable. What are your thoughts initially on what you've read? Perhaps you can tell us how we can improve it as well. Yeah, I think it's a good read. I mean, I would recommend others to actually sit down and read the whole thing. It does take a little while, but it's well written. It's very readable. It's got a nice practical focus. It's relatively a page turner as far as these things go. That is relative, of course. It's balanced. It gets into aspects related to labor, the chemicals and so on. There was quite a bit of stuff in there that I did not know about. So it was good read. The social aspects, of course, get a lot of attention. It helps highlight some of the issues in the sector, particularly with cotton. I was struck by some of the statistics on cotton, which I haven't worked on. You know, 16% of the world's pesticides, 3,000 liters of water to make a t-shirt, dramatic and serious labor issues and slave labor and so on in those supply chains. And then if we look at bringing this into what's going on with viscos, you know, as someone who's worked on forests and land use for my whole career, just really intrigued by the potential of a much more sustainable, renewable and regenerative supply chain based on sustainable forest management, plantation management, and so on, which we know can be done in a very responsible and sustainable way and on a large scale to meet growing demand. So those are some of the things that struck me. If I was going to suggest some improvements, I think a lot more attention and detail is needed to the reality on the ground in different parts of the world. So the report takes a quick look, gives a snapshot of what's happening in Canada, talks about Brazil, Indonesia a little bit, touches on China. But I think that deserves a lot more attention. These are very different contexts, different histories, understanding that and how things are developing. I'd also like to see maybe a bit more of a global perspective in the sense that, as the report points out, two thirds of viscose is produced and used in China, for example. But when we're looking at these issues, we tend to focus on the big European-based brands and so on, and they get a lot of the attention. But there's obviously a lot going on in other parts of the world and unpacking that and the challenges and opportunities that that brings and the progress being made in some of those places, I think would be really great to look at in future versions. Yes, thanks, Nigel. That's a good challenge. And one that I think is essential to bring this sort of thing for life. Everything in this space is context specific, as we know. And to your point about cotton, the other partner we work with a lot, uh, Cotton Connect, is doing a really, really good job of bringing those stories to life. If you go through, look at their website and look at the videos they've done that show how you can take a sustainability program, build a regen program on top of it for cotton farmers in India and Pakistan, and really bring to life the changes as they are being experienced on the ground. It's, they're a good example of perhaps how we could try and approach this sort of thing next year. So that's very helpful feedback. Thank you. Lucy, turning to you, you guys have put a lot of effort into helping the world understand a bit more about what modern viscose production looks like. I've seen it firsthand. I was pretty impressed. Has this report given you anything to learn from? What are your views on what's come out of it? And again, perhaps also comment on where you'd like to see us go next with it. To begin with, I think I find the report to be an honest and balanced stock-taking of two of the key materials used in the textile industry right now, but particularly the focus on the challenges that still need to be addressed. Let me start with a couple of points that I found to be relevant to us 
as fiber and viscose producers. So first, the report made quite a big point about vertical integration and how this lends well to supply chain, transparency, and traceability. In our case, in the case of April and Asia-Pacific Ray and APR, for example, we can track the fiber that goes into the viscose mills down to the plantation compartment where they were harvested. So we can assure brands that these are 100% plantation fiber and are compliant with our sustainable forest management policy. Now, we're using blockchain technology for this to ensure integrity, but the challenge is this is not a complete chain. Now, to be honest, it's actually a broken chain because we've only been able to go as far as viscose production. Unfortunate reality is there is no interest in other parts of the value chain to be part of this traceability platform. Where are the spinners, the dyers, the fabric manufacturers, the garment makers? They're not connected to this traceability system at all. So it is a broken chain and does not always get all the way to the brands, if at all, and much less to the consumers. I guess that speaks to the point on collaboration that Lisa also mentioned that I will expound on also shortly. But in the meantime, the other point that I found to resonate with us that was mentioned in the report is this reference to the global movement called Nature Needs Half. We did actually call it such back in 2015, but essentially I think it is the same principle as our one-for-one commitment, where we commit to conserve a hectare of natural forest for every hectare of plantation that we established. And we are at 82% of the way to complete this. Now, this is a critical commitment for us, given the legacy of plantation establishment that we have as an industry. We know that these are all legal plantation establishments, uh, part of the country's overall development plan, guided by the best available tools, whether it was high conservation value framework and more recently high carbon stock approach. But the reality is there is such a legacy and we acknowledge that. So we do recognize that we have a big share of the responsibility to conserve and protect the standing natural forests. So this is a commitment that we're working towards. Now, just on the report in general, I know Lisa spoke about viscose and the increasing attention that the industry has given to it in terms of its impact. Let me just, I guess, mention the fact that synthetic fiber makes up 68% of the global material basket of the fashion industry. And polyester is about 57% of that global fiber production. Now, as the world is shifting from a fossil fuel-driven economy, there is this glaring question that the industry needs to face as to how will they be part of that transition in terms of their fiber choices. Now, cotton is 26%, so it's still fairly significant, but man-made cellulosic fiber is just 6.5% of this. So sometimes I wonder whether the industry is focusing on the right impact area or in the right material in terms of really driving a transition so that it's aligned with the global movement from, as I mentioned, fossil fuel-based products or production. I guess that's a question for the next report in terms of a focus. The final point I want to make, I appreciate how the report noted that brands and retailers should be more frank about the complexity of the challenges that are facing them. Because given the complexity of the value chains, simple and especially simplistic, do not work in this industry. If I can just take the use of recycled fiber as an example, visions have been set for transitioning the entire MMCF segment onto 
sourcing 50% of its fiber needs from recycled materials. But there's so many fundamental questions that still need to be addressed by the industry as a whole. We're still trying to understand if there is adequate feedstock. Is there a collection infrastructure in place? Are the technologies already mature that you can actually shift from trials to large-scale production? Where are the brand partners? If we're talking about collaboration, if we are trialing the use of viscose with recycled content, how do we know they will work well further down the value chain in terms of garment production? And where is the market interest? If Saturday, our sister company, is the biggest producer of viscose at this point and therefore can definitely drive the shift to the use of more recycled material, but where is the collaboration that needs to happen so that there will be more brand uptake of these? I guess it's really just to highlight that some of the transitions that we are pursuing right now still need to be understood in terms of their full environmental impact, their actual commercial viability, so that they become mainstream and not just niche. And it takes the whole value chain to take their respective share of the responsibility to make these transitions happen. Again, just going back to the point of collaboration, which I also recognize the report makes a big point of. I'll, I'll stop there for now, Toby. It's interesting, isn't it? When you look at apparel and textiles through the lens of climate, which is relatively recent, I would suggest, the man-made or the, the fossil fibers become very indefensible very quickly. Sticking on the viscose front at the moment, I think it's clear that the opportunity to perhaps to switch to a more sustainable fibre isn't as recognised yet as it could be. That's part of the reason we're doing this. But what sort of interest and growth are you seeing at the moment? You mentioned that style of 6 to 7%. What sort of growth are we seeing in sales of viscose year on year in recent times? Is it accelerating with greater climate interest, I suppose, is my main question. From what I understand, the market trend is basically just a growth of 4%, and I think Listel can also help verify that. But uh, in terms of a global market growth rate, we're only looking at a 4% growth at this point. As you can see, yes, there's a lot of promise in terms of it being biodegradable, renewable, but at the same time, of course, there's still a whole industry discussion going on in terms of the risks rooted to sustainable forest management and how the fibers are actually produced. So this is still something that we need to facilitate a more informed understanding of what the challenges are, what safeguards are in place already, and what commitments have been made, and how are they being implemented on the ground. So better understanding across the value chain, especially with the brands, on having greater trust in sourcing from some of the developing markets or producers, such as Indonesia, for example. Yeah, good point. Lisa, let me come to you next. On the brands understanding the impact of fossil fuel materials on their climate footprint, as I mentioned, we did that podcast recently. I know it was a big part of your conference, a big part of your work. Are you seeing a big shift in awareness in your brand members, or is it more of a slow and steady, and it takes time for them to shift to other materials? What's your sense of the mood music, Lisa? <laughs> Yeah, no, Toby, for sure. There's been a huge awareness boom, I would say. And I was really fascinated when Nigel mentioned his focus on COVID. And I think that has stimulated and catalyzed a lot of conversations, including one around transition planning. And I think this is very nascent, but one thing we learned from 
we're learning, I should emphasize, from COVID is that none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And we don't have all the answers or the solutions. We're living day by day. So lots to figure out. But a little bit to what Lucy was saying as well, how do we share this transition? How do we look at bringing everybody with us? What does it mean to decouple from fossil fuels? We're kind of figuring out what that means in terms of alternative and renewable energy. And that's obviously a huge part of the conversation. But then when you get to materials, the opportunities to decouple from fossil fuels through synthetics, well, we have recycled. And even within that category, we probably need to just keep moving, keep pushing that envelope from plastic packaging and bottles through to the technology and innovations that will hopefully give us textile to textile, as well as all the slowing down of the system, right? We have to look at the system. And then so polyester, there's a whole conversation, as you know, in that And then when we look at land-based materials and the opportunities there, and this has got to be seen as where is the pre-competition, where is the opportunity to collaborate and work together, where is the fairness in these transitions, which means we all have to contribute to this happening. So finding the common ground for these conversations, getting back to the barometer report, really has to happen. We have to find those places to have those conversations. Some of them are going to be very technical, others are going to be very political, but unless we can work through them, it sounds good to be looking for decoupling from fossil fuels and to be moving to circular feedstocks and innovation. It's that transition journey that I think we still need to be open to the conversation and figuring it out. So if we can get the land use part right, and I know in the past that's been a big if, it's less of a big if now from what I've seen in Indonesia, then really we may be moving from stranded assets to regenerative assets. If we take the fossil fuel to perhaps more organic material production. Nigel, is that too glib a way of putting it? And secondly, more importantly, how do companies like APR and April do this in a credible way that really shows what they're doing is trusted as an alternative to the impacts that we know fossil materials have? Well, I think we're seeing tremendous progress. Yeah, As Lucy said, there's a long legacy and a long history to this industry. I think it's really turned the corner. And if you look at what April is doing, you see some really great examples of how they're addressing this. So yes, trust is important, but it's also possible to now really verify what's happening on the ground. So April, for example, make it very clear where they're sourcing from. They're very open about that. They provide maps of those areas. So then anyone independently can go in with tools like Global Forest Watch Pro or the Emerging Land and Carbon Watch that WRI is building with the best satellite data in the world processed and analyzed and overlay that with those published maps and see exactly what's going on. So there's a trust but verify approach now that's there. It's working well. April has clear targets and commitments. It'll be clear to everybody whether they're sticking to those or not. And I think we can be optimistic, given their track record over recent years, that they're very committed to doing this. They're now very visible on this. We see similar stories in the Brazilian industry and in, in southern Brazil, for example. Yeah, there's a lot of very positive progress there with sustainable plantations and so on. So that is fundamentally a renewable resource. 
where the land rights issues are properly addressed and so on. There's still some work to do on some of those aspects, but we see a lot of commitment and encouragement in that direction. And then, as Lucy said, you've got the traceability issue. So it's one thing to fix that end of the supply chain, but what happens after that? Where does the material go? What does it get mixed with? And what are the brands and the companies on the markets end of this who really drive the whole fast fashion business model, which brings with it so many challenges, what are they doing to help address this? And we know that some companies are starting to look at this. It seems like it's taken them a while to really get serious about it. But how are they going to ensure that sustainability is affordable? How are major markets across the world that supply most of what people where not the fancy fashion brands, but some of the more basic stuff that we all need, what are they going to do to ensure that they're incentivizing and supporting sustainability all the way back down through that supply chain? I think that's a huge question and requires a lot of discussion, a lot of working together. I think Innovation Forum can play a huge role in helping bring folks together to discuss that, building on this report and future work that I hope you do. Let me take that and put it into a closing question for all of you. And maybe I'll come to you with it first, Nigel, then Lisa, and then Lucy for the final word. We've just written a conference agenda for our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference 2022. And one of the headlines is, is fast fashion dead inside 10 years? And I think that was the CEO of one of the major fashion brands who's now cashed out, <laughs> as they often do before they get radical. And has said, you know, there's less than 10 years of fast fashion left. And of course, cheap petrochemicals have enabled it. So let me ask you all this as a closing question. And let's try and phrase it around opportunity as well. What will be the role of viscose, of sustainable viscose, with, with all the things it needs to do that we've talked about? in bringing fast fashion into a if not its own demise then into a slow or medium fashion so it becomes more sustainable what are the headline opportunities and challenges for viscose nigel let me come back to you with it i think the basic point is that viscose can be produced in a regenerative way as lucy described you can grow trees you can invest some of the income from that in conservation and landscape scale collaboration to restore and conserve biodiversity, sequester carbon, and support other efforts on a wider scale that are good for nature, good for the environment. So fundamentally, I think that's the promise. The challenges with this basic fast fashion business model, just trying to churn through huge amounts of material, massive amounts of waste in those supply chains. I think that has to end. That cannot continue beyond the next decade. Thank you. Liesl? Yeah, I like that, Nigel. I think that's great. And I guess just to build on that in my theme today about <laughs> transition planning and thinking about what our world will look like or we, how we want it to look like, how more of our materials are secondary materials, how they're coming through innovative waste streams and residue streams and you know what the practical implementation of that might look like so that we are indeed reducing the pressure on natural resources, on ecosystems, on forests. And I do think that needs to be part of the picture, that shift from virgin materials to recycled materials, but also you know, what's happening on the ground outside of these siloed supply chains and into these landscape contexts, what we can do together with governments and other stakeholders. And I think it was one of your colleagues, Lucin Craig Tribole, who talked about listening to stakeholders and, and rights holders and how critical it is to engage with critics. 
those conversations in a landscape. They seem a million miles away in some ways because we've been so focused on our own industry needs. But how do we all support those conversations happening so that there is more collaboration and cross-sectorial learning to speed up the action that we need? And Lucy, let's turn to you for your closing remarks as we bring this to a finale. I think my final point would be Viscos offers a sustainable alternative pathway for the textile and fashion industry to shift from fossil fuel-based materials to something that is renewable, biodegradable, and can be sustainably produced. I think our invitation to the industry is to be engaged. Currently, what's happening is there's a tendency to exclude on the basis of risks. But as we're hearing from Lisa, the encouragement here is to engage and take part and understand a bit more and be part in fact, of some of the initiatives that are happening on the ground, whether this be the brands or the rest of the actors in the value chain, they can have a better understanding of the entire landscape and how it is to balance the different imperatives that we need to respond to, whether with the local communities, the economic, the social, and of course, the whole conservation and environmental aspects of it. The solutions are there, the commitments are there, but we just need the rest of the industry to try and be part of that action on the ground so that everybody would be able to have an impact and have that opportunity to really understand what is going on in the entire value chain. Thank you, Lucy. Well, that really is the key, isn't it, that last line? Knowing what's going on in your value chain and picking your lowest impact option, which we would hope will be heading towards net positive as fast as possible. And of course, the magic word regenerative. Listeners, I hope this has helped inform your knowledge on sustainable viscose it certainly has mine and we spent lots of time looking at this but there's always so much to learn so really like to thank lucy liesel and nigel for their insights we will take your feedback on board and try and come back next year with a new and improved barometer that adds we hope some value to the industry and please go to the innovation forum website look for the sustainable power barometer and download and read i'm sure there'll be something there that you can learn thank you all for your time and goodbye